Hey, good morning. Uh, great to have you with us this morning. I'm Jamie Borchick. I'm a teaching pastor here at Park. And if you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or you can pull that up on your devices, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, we have been dealing with some challenging topics in recent weeks, and today is no different. Today we're talking about divorce. Divorce is never part of the plan, and yet divorce frequently becomes a painful part of the story. That there's a uh, stat that floats around that you may have heard that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Now that stat is a fiction, but the truth isn't actually that much better. Uh, I did some digging. The best research I could find shows that about 39% of all first-time marriages and then a higher percentage of all subsequent marriages end in divorce today. And for that reason, divorce touches all of us. Some of us have experienced parents divorcing when we were young. Others, uh, some of us here today, have been through a divorce ourselves. Others have watched friends, relatives, maybe even our own children go through a divorce. Just this week, I heard about one friend who recently divorced his wife, and I talked to another friend who is on the brink of divorce right now. Divorce touches all of us, and if it hasn't touched you directly at this point in your life, it likely will at some point in the future. And as part of the community of faith, we need to know how to think about this together because it's going to impact our brothers and sisters. And our passage today is one of the longest and clearest teachings in the Bible on the subject of divorce. So today we're going to look closely at what the Bible says on this topic. Now to frame this for us this morning... A few weeks ago, I used an analogy from the world of sports to introduce the basic framework of the Apostle Paul's ethical teaching. When you believe in Jesus, you become a part of his team. You join Team Jesus. And when you join Team Jesus, you get a new playbook for your life. Now, you don't run that playbook in order to get on the team. It doesn't work in that direction. No, you run that playbook because you're on the team. When Jesus saves you, When you become part of his family, when you believe in him, when you belong to him, you live differently because of what he's done for you. And you live differently from the rest of the world. You run a different playbook from everybody else. And Paul, in the chapters we've been walking through in 1 Corinthians, what he's been doing is he's been walking through the playbook and showing us the plays that members of Team Jesus do and do not run. So this morning, our text is the playbook regarding divorce. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through it, we're going to read it, and then walk carefully through it. And because this is a complex subject that requires a lot of nuance, we're not going to be able to say everything that can or needs to be said regarding divorce today. So if you have questions about anything that comes up in this sermon or anything that we've talked about over the last few weeks, um, there's going to be a slide up here that shows you a number that you can text. And if you send a question into that number, at the end of the service, Pastor Jay and I are going to be up here, and we're going to try to answer some of your questions. So if, if anything's unclear, you've got a further question about anything regarding sex, marriage, relationships, etc., please send it in so we can talk about, about that today. And my aim for you today is that you would walk out of here with a ton of clarity regarding what the Bible says regarding divorce and what it means for your life going forward, okay? So let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we mean verses 10 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, 
that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Father, as we look at this word today, we need your help. We need your help to understand it rightly and, and even more to apply it rightly in our lives. So I pray that you'd be gracious to us today in giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you give me help as I try to teach this to us? We thank you and pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, to so start, look at verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, to the married. So he begins this section addressing Christians who are married to other Christians. And the main line of what he says to them is this. To the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That's the core of what he's saying. So what's he saying? He's saying don't divorce. The words separate and divorce, uh, they mean the same thing in the Greek. It's the same idea here. So Paul's telling Christian couples, Christians married to other Christians, you don't divorce. That's not a play Team Jesus runs. Okay? Then look at verses 12 and 13. Because here Paul's speaking into a slightly different situation. In verse 12, he addresses the rest. Now, in verse 8 of our chapter 7, Paul addressed single people who aren't married to anybody. And then in verse 10, he addressed Christians who are married to other Christians. And now he addresses the rest. And so who's left? Well, this would be Christians who are married to non-Christians. Christians who are married to non-Christians. Now, this relationship situation is not uncommon today. This happens often in our world. But it was even more common in Paul's day. And the reason it was more common was not because Christians were running around finding non-Christians to marry all the time. Now, the reason it was common was because Paul was going into cities where there were no Christians, and he was preaching the gospel. And some of the people who heard the gospel message believed. They put their faith in Jesus, and they became Christians. And some of those people who became Christians were already married to other people who were not yet Christians. And so you got the situation where you have a marriage where one person is playing for Team Jesus and the other person is not playing for Team Jesus. And that raised some major questions. Like if that's you, if you just believed in Jesus, should you stay in that marriage to a non-believer? Or should you get a divorce so you can go marry another teammate, go marry someone else who's playing for Team Jesus? Right? Like what do you do in a mixed marriage like that? It was a real question. And this is the dilemma facing these new Christians in Corinth. So Paul says to them, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So Christian man, Christian man, as long as your wife doesn't walk out on you, you don't divorce her. So Christian husbands, divorce is not part of your playbook. Okay? Then look at verse 13. A quick side note here. But this is actually remarkable, and we need to pay attention to it. In a patriarchal society, like the first century Roman world, where women had very few rights, who does Paul address here in verse 13? Women. And it's actually the second time in this passage he does it. 
Back in verse 11, he started off addressing wives. And all throughout this passage, he dignifies women by giving equal attention to women and to wives. So Christians sometimes get accused of being misogynistic, prejudiced against women. But, and sometimes, in truth, like Christians have been misogynistic. Like that does happen. But I want you to see here that that is not because of the Bible. Right? The Bible consistently elevates and dignifies women in ways the first century world did not and in ways our 21st century world does not. So in verses, so then as Paul addresses women in verse 13, as he turns to the women, he says the same thing to them that he just said to the men. He says, hey, wives, if you've got a non-believing husband and he's cool sticking it, sticking it out with you, then you don't divorce him. So Christian wives, divorce is not part of your playbook. So in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, four times in these verses, Paul says not to divorce. And all four times in the Greek, he uses an imperative, a command. So Paul is commanding believers in this passage not to get divorced. So here's the main point in this passage. This is the big idea today. Divorce is a play that members of Team Jesus generally do not run. Divorce is a play that members of Team Jesus generally do not run. Now, I'm guessing that that does not come as a huge shock to any of you. But in a culture where divorce is a big part of the playbook, it can seem pretty radical to exclude it. And while I don't think most people, Christian and non-Christian alike, like most people do not go to the altar dreaming of the day they're going to get divorced. You know, that's not part of the original plan. But what happens is a few years down the line, you find yourself in a marriage to, to another sinful human being, and all your issues are coming out, and stuff is hard. And you can get into a tough spot where you're really struggling. I mean, and then you throw, uh, like marriage is hard in general. You throw a pandemic, you throw uh, all the chaos of the last few years on top. Like marriage can be tough. And if your marriage is really hard, you might be at a place where you really want divorce to be a part of your playbook. That might look like a really attractive option. And for some of you sitting here today, like that might be you right now. And if you're in that spot, and someone comes to you and just says like, hey, don't divorce. Don't do it. It's not really all that helpful sometimes. Sometimes you need something a little more. And thankfully, this passage gives us something more. It gives us more than just a command. It gives us some reasons. For starters, it gives us two practical reasons not to divorce. The first, we see in verse 14. It's for the sake of your family. For the sake of your family. Paul is saying in verse 14 that if the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married to the believer, you should stick it out because of the way that marriage shapes your family. One of the concerns these early Christians had, and and I'm sure some modern Christians have, is that being married to a non-Christian somehow makes you less holy. Like it makes you tainted or stained. It makes you less acceptable to God. And Paul's writing in verse 14 to confront that lie, saying that's not the case. He actually says the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of the believing spouse. And then he goes on to say that your children are also holy. Paul is not saying here that being married to a Christian automatically saves everyone in the family. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that marriage brings unbelieving spouses and children into a sphere of influence where the Team Jesus playbook can rub off on them and can shape their lifestyle, shape their culture, shape the family, shape the home. 
And that, that, that exposure to the Christian in the family can have a positive effect on, on the whole environment of the family life. It puts them into an environment where holiness is present and where they can be exposed to the gospel and to God's people and to the way of life of God's people. And that's a good thing. And then the second practical reason not to divorce is for the sake of your spouse. You see this in verse 16. Paul says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Like if you're married to a non-Christian, you don't know how God might use, that, that might use you in that person's life over the long run. Now Paul's not guaranteeing salvation here. He's not saying it's automatic, but he's holding it out as a possibility. See, God might use you to bring your spouse to saving faith. Your spouse might watch your life, might see your faith, might see how you love him or her with the love of Christ, might see the difference that Jesus makes in your life, and your spouse might come to believe. Again, there's no guarantee here, but it's more likely being in your sphere of influence than it might be otherwise. So don't divorce, stay married. Now, in all of this, again, Paul's not saying that single Christians, there's a lot of single Christians in here, he's not telling you to go out and seek a non-Christian spouse. Right? This is not an endorsement of missionary dating. But what he is saying is that if you were already married to someone who's not a believer in Jesus, when you become a Christian, if you're already in that kind of relationship, you're not lesser because of it. And in fact, God can use you to impact your family for good. He can use that relationship for good. So don't divorce a non-believing spouse because of how your marriage can positively impact your family and impact your spouse. That's his point. Now, those are two practical reasons not to divorce. And they're giving, given specifically to Christians who are married to non-Christians. But that's not all Paul gives us here. Because undergirding and supporting everything else Paul says here is something much deeper that applies to all marriages and applies to all of us. And we see a hint of it in verse 10. In verse 10, Paul writes, To the married I give this charge. And then in parentheses he says, Not I but the Lord. And if you look at verse 12, you see that he flips that around. He says, I, not the Lord. The Lord here is Jesus. That's who he's referring to. And Paul is commenting in these verses on what Jesus did and did not directly address during his earthly teaching ministry. Now, all of this passage, everything you're reading here and everything in the Bible, it carries the same biblical and ethical weight. All of this is God's word. We need to listen and obey and receive all of it. But there are some things that Jesus himself, during his teaching ministry, did not directly speak to. And the stuff in verses 12 and 13, Jesus didn't talk directly about that situation. But he did directly speak to the verse 10 and 11 issue of believers and divorce. And that's why Paul says, not I, but the Lord. What he's saying here is essentially a retweet of what Jesus said first. And it's in what Jesus said first that we see the deeper reason not to divorce. So what did Jesus say first? There are four different places in the Gospels where Jesus talks about divorce. Two of those are brief comments. If you want to look them up later, it's Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and Luke 16, 18. The other two places are more extended and actually parallel accounts of the same scene, where Jesus talks about divorce in a conversation with religious leaders who disagreed with his position. Mark 10, 1 through 12 is one, and the other is this text that you're going to see up behind me. This is Matthew 19. And this is what Jesus says about divorce. And the Pharisees came up to him, 
And they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no no longer two, but now one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Pharisees, who were some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they asked Jesus if divorce is part of the playbook. And notice how Jesus responds. He takes them back to the playbook. He takes them to God's word. He says, have you not read? And he's referencing Genesis chapters 1 and 2 at the very beginning of the Bible. And he's talking about God's original design for marriage. In verse 5, he then quotes Genesis 2.24, which is the key text in the whole Bible when it comes to marriage. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the architect's blueprint for marriage. And according to the architect, do you know what marriage is? Marriage is bad math. Marriage is bad math. See, marriage is not one half plus one half equals one. It is not the romanticized Hollywood kind of relationship you see in the movies. So anybody, anybody remember the movie Jerry Maguire back in the day? Anybody seen that? Okay, so there's this scene, you know, Tom Cruise, the sports agent, he falls in love with his secretary, and there's a scene toward the end of the movie where, where they've, been, they've been this back and forth kind of thing, and, she, and he looks at her, and what does he say? What's the line? What is it? So, Adam Pennington is a huge fan of Jerry Maguire. <laughs> you complete me, you complete me, right? And she swoons, and they fall in love and happily ever after, right? You complete me. This is not that, Right? Like, the truth is that no other human being can or will ever complete you. They can't. Only God can do that. Only God can make you whole and complete. And if you put that kind of pressure on another human being to complete you, one, you're going to smother the other person, and two, you're going to end up sorely disappointed in the end. So you're going to expect way too much out of your spouse, and you'll never be complete in the end. So marriage is not one half plus one half equals one. Marriage is also not one plus one equals two. It's not one plus one equals two. It is not merely the mutual partnership of two individuals who agree to kind of come alongside each other for a season. It's not a temporary consumer kind of relationship like what you might have with your internet provider. Like as long as you're getting a good deal in this relationship, you stick with it. But if you can find a better deal somewhere else, well, you go find a better deal somewhere else and you pair up with someone else right? Like marriage is not that kind of consumer relationship. It's not one plus one equals two. Marriage is not math that actually works. It's not math where you can do division and get the original number back out. It doesn't work like that. No, marriage is bad math. Marriage is one plus one equals one. It's one plus one equals one. It is the lifelong joining together of a man and a woman in a one flesh union. When you get married, you commit to giving your whole self to the other person for the whole of your life. That means relationally, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, financially, physically. You join your schedules, your bank accounts, your social networks, your passwords. You join everything. 
Now in that, you don't lose your individuality. You remain a whole person in Christ. You remain who you are. But you bring your whole self with this other person who's bringing their whole self into the relationship. And you give your whole self to the other person to love and serve the other person with the whole of your life for the rest of your life. And then you come together physically and you do with your bodies what you've already committed to doing with your lives. That's what marriage is about. Marriage is bad math. It's one plus one equals one. And Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6, that God is the one who makes that bad math possible. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus anchors his view of marriage and divorce in the bad math of God's blueprint. His objection to divorce is theological and spiritual. It is based on God's design for marriage. And that design, it goes deeper still. Paul, the same guy who's writing our text to the Corinthians today, in his letter to the Ephesians, he further elaborates on the blueprint. He says this, he quotes the same text from Genesis about joining together as one flesh. And then he comments, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says the bad math of marriage is a profound mystery, right? Like the math doesn't make sense. It kind of blows your mind when you think about it. It's a profound mystery. And then he says that that bad math, it actually refers to Christ and the church. Now, do you know what this is? You know what that is, but... So, Rob, you got the next one for me? Do you know what this is? This is a picture of Kinsey and I on our wedding day. And, uh, I mean, you look at my bride that day, like, she was beautiful. She is beautiful, and she was, she was beautiful on that day. Like, just radiant, smiling. Like, this was an awesome day, one of the best days of our lives, the best party we've ever been at, super fun. Those of you who are married, like, you've had these days. You know, you know what it's like. It's awesome, right? And, y'all, you were not there. I don't think any of you, I'm pretty sure none of you were at our wedding, right? Like, I didn't, we didn't know any of you the day we got married. So none of y'all were there. None of you, none of you were at this event, Right? But as you look at this picture, you can understand a little more what it was all about. You can see some things about it. You can learn some things about our relationship and about our wedding, right? Like one one thing you can learn is that our photographer really loved diagonal pictures. (laughs) We have a lot of those that are kind of off angle. It's kind of weird. But you can learn a lot of things, the colors, the, the, the vibrance. Like you can see some stuff about us, about that day by looking at this picture. Now, this picture is not that day, but it refers to that day. It's a pointer to that day. And when you look at this, you're supposed to think about that. And let me ask you this. Which came first? This or that? Right? Like, which came first? The picture or the real thing? It was the real thing. The real thing is the real thing. The picture points to it, but the real thing is what matters. And when it comes to marriage, which comes first? The picture or the real thing? Is it the picture of of human marriage or the real thing of God's relationship to his people? See, human marriage is intended to refer to a far greater marriage. 
Human marriage is a momentary picture of the eternal and far more glorious marriage between God and his people. Marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church. Christ who gave himself entirely and wholly to the church. And the church who responds by giving herself entirely and wholly to Christ. In short, marriage is a picture of the gospel. The gospel is the real thing. And human marriage is the picture. And the fundamental problem with divorce is that when you take the picture and you tear it in half, you distort the image of the thing that it's intended to represent. See, marriage is supposed to tell the gospel story. The story of a God who's so committed to his people that he literally gives his life for them. The story of a God who loves his people with a never-failing, never-giving-up, always-and-forever kind of love. That is the story that marriage is supposed to tell. But divorce tells a different story. And that's the problem with divorce. It tells the wrong story about God. You see, the topic of our text and the topic of this sermon today is divorce. But when we talk about divorce, and when Paul and Jesus talk about divorce, what we're really doing is not really prohibiting divorce. What we're doing is we're elevating and celebrating marriage. Marriage is such a good thing with such theological and spiritual and practical significance that we can't just treat it like a piece of paper that can be torn up when it gets hard or when we get tired of it. For Christians, marriage and divorce are far more about God than they are about us. And for that reason, Team Jesus, the playbook, it generally prohibits divorce because of what's at stake. Now, does that mean that divorce is always wrong? Does that mean that divorce is always wrong? Are there ever situations in which divorce is the right play? Well, in the Bible, divorce is never commanded. It is never commanded, but it is sometimes permitted. There are two clear exceptions to the general prohibition on divorce in Scripture. Jesus talks about one, and Paul talks about the other. So that Matthew 19 text we looked at earlier, it finishes with Jesus saying this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then in Matthew 5.32, he says essentially the same thing. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now we've talked about sexual immorality frequently over the last several weeks. And so when one party in a marriage is engaging in sexual activity outside of that marriage, that partner is violating that one flesh covenant of marriage. And if that is happening, Scripture gives permission, gives freedom to the innocent party to divorce and to move on. So sexual immorality is one scenario in which divorce is permissible. The other scenario is the one Paul talks about in our passage today. So look again at verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So as a Christian, you are called to peace. If your spouse stays, you seek to live peaceably with your spouse, to be a great witness, to live like Christ in your home, to bring that sphere of holiness into the relationship. 
If your spouse stays, that's what you do. But if your spouse walks out, if your spouse leaves and quits on the marriage or abandons you, you're likewise called to peace. You don't have to keep living like you're married, and nor are you trapped in a non-existent marriage to someone who is no longer there. You have freedom to move on and to live in peace elsewhere. And so biblically, these are the two clear scenarios in which divorce is permissible. Sexual immorality and desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Now I need also to acknowledge here that some raise the possibility of a third scenario. That of abuse to the spouse or to the children. And that could be abuse that is physical or sexual or psychological. It's abuse in general. Now the Bible is not explicit on this front. And theologians debate this question. But what is clear and absolutely needs to be said regarding abuse is this. If you find yourself or someone you know in an abusive relationship, the first step is to physically get out of the situation. Physically get away from the abuser. Like no one should ever stay in physical proximity to someone who is abusive. And so move out. Stay with a friend. Like start by physically getting away. If you need help doing that, talk to someone who can help you get out of the situation. But physically get away from that person. Do not stay there. And then, once you've removed yourself, and this is really important, this is an important step in any of these scenarios. If you're considering divorce at all, if you're in a situation, what you need to do, you need to bring other wise Christians into the situation to get wisdom on the best course of action going forward. This is one of the functions of elders in the local church. It is to help the body of Christ apply God's words to the complexities of life. And so if you're dealing with a spouse who is cheating or leaving or abusive, please come talk to us about it. We love you. We are here for you. We want to help you. Now, one last feature of our passage today. In verse 11, Paul adds a parenthetical comment. He says, if a wife separates, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So Paul, again here, is echoing Jesus. And Jesus said that if you divorce on unbiblical grounds and you marry someone else, you're committing the equivalent of adultery. And that makes sense because your first marriage before God is still valid. And then you're going to bed, you're marrying someone else, you're joining yourself to someone else, and so that would constitute adultery. So Paul says your choices in that case are to stay single. If you separate from a spouse and you don't have biblical grounds, you can stay single or you can pursue reconciliation with your spouse. Those are your options. And so if you're a Christian and your divorce is not biblically permissible, then remarriage likewise is not permissible. You can stay single, you can fix things with your spouse, but you cannot remarry someone else on biblical grounds. Okay? So let me sum up what we've said today. And then I want to turn and be be practical and pastoral for a minute as we wrap this thing up. But let me sum up what we said today. One, divorce is not usually part of the Team Jesus playbook. Two, divorce is never commanded, but it is sometimes permitted. Three, when divorce is not permitted, remarriage also is not permitted. And four, and all of that is because divorce tells the wrong story about God and the gospel. Now, let me get really practical here. I want to finish this morning by addressing some of you who are in various life and relationship stages that this text might speak to. So for those of you who are currently single 
and desiring marriage in the future. I'm looking at college students and some of the, some of the uh, other singles that are in the room. You need to know today that marriage is a really good thing, but it is not the best thing. God is the best thing. He is the best thing. And your life is like a race, and you want to run toward the best thing with your life. The purpose of your life is to run toward Jesus. He is the best thing. You're running toward that finish line, and you're running in the race. And as you run, you need someone else who's running the same race alongside of you that you can run with toward that ultimate goal. And so as you're running, you're going to meet people. You're going to cross paths with people, some who are running the other direction. And you're going to be like, dang, I like like the way that person looks. And you you might start turning running this way. But if you start running this way, what happens to your race? You get off course. And you might be running. You might cross somebody who's like kind of running alongside you, but is really going that direction. And if you start going this way, what happens to that race? What happens to the best thing? You're going to miss it. Like what you need to do is if you're single, you need to run the race. Run toward Jesus. You already have the best thing in your sights. So run toward Jesus. And as you're running, you look over and you're like, dang, shorty, I want to run with you. (laughs) Yeah, like let's run together. Let's go. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for somebody who's running the same race. And my exhortation to you today, if you're single right now, don't settle for less than that. Don't compromise that. You need somebody who's running the same race. Marriage works, it doesn't, doing that does not guarantee that divorce will never enter the picture and it doesn't guarantee you'll have a great marriage, but it sure makes it a whole lot more likely. You need somebody who's running the same race. Look for that kind of spouse. Now, for those of you who are seriously dating or engaged, got some couples who are at that stage, before you tie the knot, take some time to do some serious premarital counseling. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You can prevent a whole lot of future problems by doing some work on the front end. So talk with a pastor or a counselor, work through some key discussions before you get married that can help you avoid some landmines once you get into marriage. So if if that's you, if you're engaged or dating right now, before you move into marriage, come talk to us. All right, let us give you some counseling. Now for those of you who are currently married, the fact that texts like this are in the Bible is an acknowledgement that sometimes marriage can be really hard. If you're in a tough spot in your marriage right now, you need to know today that you are not alone. That's true for lots and lots of couples, including lots and lots of faithful Christian couples. Overall, Kinsey and I have had a really healthy marriage over the years, but along the way, we've had some difficult seasons where we've met with counselors and we've gotten outside help to work through different things. And so if you're struggling right now, My encouragement to you today is to keep working on it, to work it out. Let us as a a church help you with that. Come talk to me or one of our other pastors or the deacons. We want to come around you and help you to fight for your marriage. Don't quit. Keep going. It can get better. There is hope. And whether you have biblical grounds for divorce or not, I just want you to consider what a testimony to the gospel of the grace of God it would be to see your marriage strengthened and healed and restored. Like you can, you can paint that beautiful gospel picture in your marriage still. So let us help you do that. And if you're married here today and you're not struggling, like if you're in a good spot in your marriage, keep protecting and nurturing your marriage. Don't think for a second that your marriage is too strong to fail. Like your marriage is like a plant that needs regular sunshine and water. So pursue your spouse, 
pray together, cultivate and protect and nourish your relationship. You need to take good care of your bad math, right? Take good care of your bad math if you're married. And finally, if you're here today and you have divorced, know that we love you and know that God loves you still. Divorce happens in a lot of different circumstances and for a lot of different reasons. And I don't know each of your individual stories. But what I do know is the gospel story. And that story is the story of a God who loves his people with a never failing, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. All of us in relation to God, all of us are like a really bad spouse. We've all cheated on him and abandoned him and betrayed him throughout our lives. And yet he never stops loving us. He is perfectly faithful. And because he is, no matter what you have done or no matter what has been done to you, God loved you so much that he came in the person of Jesus and he laid down his life for you to offer new life to you. And if you have trusted in Jesus, regardless of your story, his love is yours now and forever. Through faith in Jesus, you, through faith in Jesus alone, you are part of team Jesus and you belong in God's family and you belong here in this church. So know today that you are loved. And know that we want to come around you and want to help you, want to help you grieve or grow or find hope or healing or whatever you need. We love you and we're here for you. Let's pray. Father, today I am very grateful for the gospel. That is the substance. That is the real thing. And I pray that you would drive that gospel truth deep into our hearts. Would we know the God of love, the God who has loved us unconditionally and sacrificially despite us? Would you shape us to be people who reflect your love back to the world, whether we are single or married or divorced, whatever our life circumstances, Father. Today, would you meet us in those? Would you be our help? I pray especially today for those who are struggling in marriage right now. Would you strengthen and restore those relationships? And would you give those couples courage to come forward and to ask for help today? Would you bring grace and help and healing to them? I pray for those who who have been through a divorce in the past or or have had uh, really hard things happen to them. Would you be their help as well? Would they know your great love for them today? Would you be uh, just an encouragement to them? I pray for all of us, God. Make us people like you. Shape us by your love. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.